Welcome to the latest FT Advisor in Focus Big Interview with me, Simni Kuriaku, Senior Editor of FT Advisor. The gender pay gap should be no surprise to any of us. After all, people were fighting for the rights for equal pay as early as 1970s. But what is disconcerting is that there is still a lack of transparency and accountability among UK companies when it comes to disclosing the data. But what does this lack of transparency mean? Is it simply because companies haven't got their data sorted out? Or is it that they're trying deliberately to hide something or fudge the figures to make themselves look better? In any case, the regulator is starting to look into this in great depth. And with October being the date at which everyone must start disclosing their information, what will it mean if those firms are late or the data is found to be inaccurate or incomplete? Here to talk to us today about some of those issues is Fiona Hathorne, Chief Executive of Women on Boards UK. Welcome, Fiona. Delighted to be here. Well, thank you very much. So, October, this is the uh, important date. Um, They're all facing regulatory scrutiny, but are firms ready? Well, I think what's nice to see is that nearly 10,000 companies have reported their gender pay gap. And that's looking at the snapshot of April 2020. And of course, last year it was delayed because of COVID. And although 7,000 have reported their gender pay gap for 2019, which they had to report by April 2020, actually, um, quite a few have filled it in recently. They've sort of filled the gap of what they didn't report. 50% of companies last year chose not to report, even though they were about a week away from reporting. And to me, that was a conscious decision to report your gender pay gap late. And what is really interesting is how difficult the gender pay gap reports are if you try and look for them on the website, and we can talk about that later. So do you think perhaps that companies have fudged the issue or that they're just presenting incomplete data or they're not sure how transparent they need to be? Is that what you're seeing? Well, I think what we're seeing is that at the moment, it's quite simple data. You know, if you employ more than 250 people, whether you're private, public, and that affects schools that are large schools, you have to report your gender pay gap. Now, we know most of them didn't want to do it. And we know it's a very simple number, the mean, the median pay gap, but also your bonus gap. Um, And I think what's really important is if you publish it, you have to potentially explain it either to a shareholder, to a member of your um, staff or your employees. um, And that's the issue. And I think what we're finding is three or four years ago when we first started, everyone was worried what was going to happen when people even found out there was a bonus gap, for example. And we can all see what happened at the BBC when they did publish it. And then I think people have gone to almost sleep over it. And I think what's really worrying is we looked at the FTSE 350 companies and also the FTSE all share companies. So about 600 companies. And I actually over the Christmas period, uh, don't laugh, chose to have a look at every single website. 50% of those gender pay gap reports I could not find. And I know what I'm looking for. And I couldn't find them. And they are on the website. They're a hidden PDF report which if you search on Google or on any other search engine, you might coincidentally come across. But they're not in the diversity and inclusion reports. They're not in the employment reports. Um, And I think that's wrong. I mean, we did find some really good examples, uh, but I think companies are still hiding behind the truth. But what does this mean for ordinary people who perhaps find it difficult to find this information? What might 
this mean for employees or shareholders in trying to access this kind of information and where would they even begin to start looking for it? Well, it makes it really difficult. Um, And I think the other thing that's important is that our gender pay gap is quite simple. You just report your data. Now, good companies are explaining what they're doing about it, what they're going to do to close their gender pay gap. So DFS, for example, uh, one of the sofa companies, they have a good gender pay gap report. Go Ahead, which is the bus and the railway company. Interestingly, Ted Baker, that's had some problems in the past in terms of culture. They've got a super explanation of their gender pay gap, but also they're saying, we're not just going to talk about the UK. We're a global company. So we're going to look at it globally. So there are some good practices going on, but I would encourage everyone to look at the gender pay gap. And I think it's a shame that our legislation doesn't currently force people to explain what they're going to do about it. And there's a really interesting piece of research from King's College, the Global Institute for um, Women in Leadership, and they've looked at all the gender pay gap reporting globally. And very, very few countries actually say, what are you going to do to close it? And I think that's really important. The other thing that's important is who within the government is looking at who has reported and whether they've published it. So there's almost no audit of these gender pay gap reports, which is where I think employee empowerment, consumer empowerment, anybody on the street can now look at these companies and they can make choices. And that's what I'm asking people to do. So if the shareholders aren't going to do it, then you as an employee, um, and you just have to go to the government website. And another good website is spectral.com, which I'll show you later. But I can talk to you about sector gender pay gaps, because that's really interesting. Well, let's look at that sector pay gap, Fiona, um, because that sounds very interesting. Obviously, FT Advisor works in the financial services space. So let's look at financial services. What's going on there, Fiona? Okay, well, I'll start off by telling you what the gender pay gap is in the UK. It's about 17%, and that's every worker. If you look at large companies that employ uh, 250 people, uh, which is where the legislation affects, it's about 10% in terms of gender pay gap, and the bonus gap is about 2%. And it's not really closed or moved ever since we've been reporting. The financial services sector is one of the worst. So their gender pay gap, I'm just looking at the data, their uh, median is 37% in the financial services in the insurance sector. But the bonus gap is 52%. So that's absolutely huge. And of course, these are quite high, highly paid sectors. And it's, you know, that's why the bonus gap is so important that we do that. The other one that's very poor also is mining um, and professional services, the professional services. So here we're looking at accountants, we're looking at lawyers. The gender pay gap currently is about 25% and the bonus gap is about 40%. Wow. So on the question of bonuses, is it because there are fewer women in senior positions and therefore they're less likely to get the bonuses that accrue to those positions? Or is it that women who are in positions of seniority or where there's a bonus attached, uh, who might be in an equal role to a bloke or have a sort of equal length of experience, equal uh, knowledge and qualifications, is just getting a lower bonus because we're not talking about them much. We don't talk about our pay in the office and therefore women can be given a, a lower bonus than their male counterparts simply because people think that we're going to rely on staff not disclosing their bonuses to each other? I think it's all of the above. We need to think about what causes it. Our society causes it, and that's the choices 
that young girls, young boys make earlier on in their life in terms of what they believe they can and can't do. So we can't blame these companies for everything. Then, of course, you've got the education system. When you look at what O-levels or GCSEs and what A-levels you take and what degrees you take, and if you're taking degrees that aren't mathematical, they're not in the computer science area, they're not in the financial services sector, then that affects your choices of what careers, because it's more harder to get into those jobs. There's also looking at um, sport. Sport is so male-dominated. And the sort of connections that you get if you play sport earlier on in your career, the the connections you get in, in terms of golf, in terms of rugby, connections to industries to help you get jobs. Um, And then, of course, you've got structural, which is where you're going into uh, certain industries. But the vertical segregation that you've talked about is the speed with which you get promoted. It's that ratchet effect. And we do know from a piece of research a while ago in the law firms, you were 10 times more likely to make a partner in a law firm if you were male rather than female. Now, that's changed. But companies, if they employ 50-50, need to look at the speed with which people get promoted and understand where they're dropping off and why. They also need to look at their intake, whether they're graduates or not, and say, are more of them going into what's described as the front office rather than the back office? Now, if you take a car company, you're talking about the the closer you are to the money, the sales side, the more money you tend to get paid than against the manufacturing side. And it's the same in financial services. So companies, by looking at their gender pay gap, it's such a simple measure. You then need to say, okay, we need to go further and we need to get into the detail here by department, by division, and see where and what's causing it. Um, It takes a long time to change it. But if you don't really understand what's going on, you're not going to make change. Sure. I I think the length of time it might take to change things has been a factor. I wouldn't say companies are necessarily afraid of public uh, censure for not quite getting it right, but trying to get it right. But it does seem like there's a, a fear factor around disclosure that perhaps they're going to end up becoming a Twitter trend or, uh, you know, sort of being castigated in the field of popular opinion. Well, I'll tell you, uh, I won't name the company because I better not, but one investment bank, quite a well-known investment bank, called me in and said, we've got our annual general meeting. So we're meeting shareholders and it's the first year of publishing our gender pay gap and we're scared. We're scared of the reaction and we just like um, your insight in terms of how to answer these questions at the shareholders meeting. So I went in to see the chief exec and the chair of this company and I asked them, well, what's the gender pay gap and your bonus gap? And they wouldn't tell me. So I said, well, that's really interesting because I can't actually then help you. So they then subsequently laughed and they did tell me what it is. And I said, congratulations, you are only slightly worse than the industry average because their bonus, their gender pay gap was 55 percent and their bonus gap was 80 percent. Now, I've told you about financial services and insurance, but remember that includes the retail banking industry. If you look at companies um, that are only investment banking, they're much higher if you pick out companies. Now, most companies are reporting their data, but they're assuming it's their fault only. um, And they don't know how they can compare and contrast with the industry. So I think the best thing that you can do is say, what industry am I in? You can then go into um, either the government website and the spec- or the spectral.com website, which I like, and you can actually pick up these individual companies and create yourself a little benchmark. 
and say, are we better or worse? And if so, what do we need to do about it? And then you then have to start breaking it down further for your company and division. But yes, uh, companies have still got a lot of work to do, but there is a fear factor. There's also a fear factor we know within companies that people will say to me, oh, well, it's not fair. I can't get promoted now. Now, I want equality everywhere Mm. for men as well as women. And within diversity, whether it's disability, whether it's LGBTQ or it's um, ethnic minorities, everyone needs to get access to the same information. And that's what's crucial. And we know from the McKinsey research and Credit Suisse uh, 3000 have just brought out their research, diverse companies perform better. They are more profitable, Mm -hmm. but only if the management team can manage diverse teams And I think that's really important that everybody realises that it's not about you getting promoted faster. It's about making sure we're promoting the right people and that we're challenging ourselves, accepting that we all have biases. Because I've got two boys. They're in their 20s. They're just starting their career. I don't want them to think, well, there's no point me working here because they're just going to fast track women for their data. And I think you need to say, what's the turnover in our department? Because if there's very little turnover, you're going to take a long time to change that gender pay gap. If you've got a lot of turnover and a lot of growth, you should be changing it quite fast. So you really need to look at each division and department and individual departments could be very, very different. And all you're doing with targets, and I often say when people say I don't like targets, and in fact, I think one of the government ministers just come out and said I don't like targets and I don't like quotas because they're artificial. You have targets for sales, costs, paperclip consumption in some places. What are you frightened of finding out? by not understanding your data by department, by division, geographical area, and saying, okay, why is that division different to this division? Um, And a target just enables you to concentrate, and it's actually just good leadership. But it doesn't mean to say that you have to promote women per se or any particular minority. You just have to make sure stretching out and getting a better intake so that you've got more diverse choice and making sure you're equal and fair with opportunities for leadership development, because we must not put men off. If we do, we know naming and shaming causes people to dig in. And it's a difficult balance. And we need open conversations uh, where people aren't frightened to talk. Mm -hmm. Um, But yes, of course, social media does. um, I have enjoyed (laughs) watching some interesting comments coming out. And that's one of the factors. But companies need to be strong And if they're leading well, they can cope with that external pressure from time to time. You made a really interesting point there, Fiona, about not just hiring women to fill that gap or meet that target. Um, I've been speaking to quite a few female financial advisors recently. And one of them said that, you know, when she got qualified, she was deliberately sought out by a chartered firm because they wanted to hire a woman. And then when she got there, it just wasn't the right fit. And she just felt like she'd been hired for a tick box exercise, but they actually hadn't got a career path in place for her. So she left and, and ended up somewhere else. She fitted into a team. And so, so we've got to be very careful, haven't we, in, in whatever industry, but obviously financial services is, is our field, to hire the right person for the team and not make this about box ticking. And again, that comes back to what you're saying about management not being afraid of the data, but using the data constructively. Well, this is why you've got to have the senior management team 
uh, who are looking at departments and teams and saying, actually, why is it that everybody went to the same public school and actually the same boarding house? Because there's a risk of groupthink in terms of socioeconomic, there's, there's many different types of groupthink. Just by recruiting a woman or uh, a diverse uh, member, if you don't look after them and the team don't believe it, all you're going to do is cause yourself, well, you're wasting money. It's expensive to recruit people. So it's expensive to lose people. So you have to really deeply embed why conscious inclusion is important. We know unconscious bias training doesn't shift the needle. And if you want to be a good leader, you have to be conscious and saying, if we recruited somebody in from Taiwan, who's a technology expert, why are we not listening to them? Why are we not engaging with them? And changing your behavior and it could even be changing your drinking policy you know the times you have meetings you really need to deeply think about it and so change from the top is one thing but if you don't spend the money below um, and what we find we do a lot of work with big corporates where we talk to them about owning your own career and actively managing your career And I always talk about the boardroom because the boardroom matters. But we tend to find that we're dealing with diversity and inclusion teams with very small budgets. The big budgets are up here with the leadership and development teams. And it's only spent in very large companies on maybe 50 people, 10 people. And I'm talking companies that employ thousands. Um, So I think the biggest issue is the permafrost, the middle management who've been promoted to the level of incompetence, which is managing people who haven't actually had any training or support on how to be consciously inclusive. Let's look at some of the positive drivers for change for for companies. We're not wanting to use the data as a big stick just to beat them with. Let's talk about the carrots. Why is it good for business? It's good for business because if you have people with a different mindset, they'll be thinking about different products. They'll be thinking about different processes, different way of doing things. That's what really makes a difference. They also listen and hear different things. Um, There's a huge amount of research, particularly coming out of the States, where if you ask um, two groups of students, for example, to talk about their favourite subject to a different political group, you know, you've got the Democrats and the Republicans, we know that somebody who goes into a group of people they perceive not like them, they work harder because they're worried that they've got to do more work to change your mind and change your opinion. And that's what companies want. There's a huge amount of research on uh, US banks, for example. And what they're looking at, those companies that spend more on research and development tend to have more diverse teams. Those companies that launch new products tend to have diverse company individuals who are thinking in a different way and they're producing more different products. So, for example, in the banking industry, they were producing products that people actually wanted to buy, as opposed to a leadership team from the top creating with a view that they might want to buy them. And we've had a lot of issues in our financial services industry selling products that people don't need. Well, that certainly sounds like a good prospect, a product that people want to buy rather than something that they uh, are told they want. You only have to think of the endowment scandals or uh, zeros or split caps to to, to realise that people had often been missold something on a strange premise. 
and cognitive diversity is very, very important. So it's not just about gender. And the research that's out has been going for a long time, the Credit Suisse 3000 research, where they're looking at 3000 companies, um, and the more diverse your leadership team at the executive and the board level, and they're looking at gender here, the share price performs differently, the return on assets is higher, all of those things. Just because the line goes up, you can't prove it's gender. From my point of view, it just proves that women are getting to the top in these companies and these companies are just better managed. Um, And I think that's what's really, really important. So I don't think it's a gender thing specifically as to why these companies are performing better. It is just that they've got better leadership teams and there's better throughput in terms of performance. And they've removed survivorship bias because a lot of people talk to me about survivorship bias. um, And you do have to be very careful how you construct this data to make sure it's fair. We just talk about the sort of data post-pandemic. Obviously, there have been many studies in in recent months looking at the effect, particularly on women um, and the pandemic. Many women have taken time off work or even reduced hours or gone part-time or left their jobs to kind of look after their children or because the lifestyle change was kind of forced upon them. We also know that a lot of women tended to be in jobs where there might have been less financial security, more likelihood of redundancy. Do you think that the pay gap data next year will accurately reflect that? And is that something that we should be afraid of? Or do you think it's just going to end up being a blip? I am concerned that we all quite like this hybrid life in terms of how we manage our careers. But visibility in the office still matters. And therefore, those that get to the top often are very effective at championing their achievements. And I don't mean showing off, making sure people who work with them know what they're doing, how they've contributed, not just in their department, but outside, because that enables you to get promotion. And also having a vision and a perspective of how the whole company operates means that you're more aware of promotion opportunities and how it works. So I am concerned that women in particular that we know do more of the child rearing, this will have a deeply negative effect on their careers if they don't recognise this and own it and manage it. Now, yes, we can talk about companies being better in terms of how they manage and understand their employees' contribution. But we know currently we don't necessarily have the best leaders everywhere. And therefore, it's so important that you own your own careers, which is why when we go into companies and we're about advertising board roles for free, supporting people apply for board roles, we run this workshop called On Track for Success. And the first part is career tips and tricks. The higher up you go, the more effective you have to be in meetings and you have to be able to influence people effectively in the round, multiple stakeholders. And championing your achievement is part of that. Get that licked. We also then encourage people to understand what's the role of their own board, how many committees or subsidiaries are there, how do you report into them somehow, even via a long chain, and also understand the career benefits of being on an external board as part of a career development strategy. And my favourite senior executive, and I've got lots of them, male and female, is Alison Rose, the chief exec of RBS. I was once talking to her, actually it was in a a large group, she was talking to us about her career, and I asked her when she first went on a board. I honestly didn't know what she was going to say, and she said she was 16 
That was her first board position. She was on a trustee of her local lifeguard association where she was a lifeguard. Then she was on several boards at university, sports club boards, debating society boards. Then when she left university, she was on sports boards, she's on school boards. Yes, she's had children at the same time. And she did this all alongside her career. So it's choice. Now, if you look at a lot of the women who are chief execs, and there are very few female chief execs globally we know, if you look at their backgrounds, they always have something really unique, a family disaster, a situation, parents who lived overseas, Carolyn McCall, EasyJet ex-chief exec, I think she's, is she Channel 4? Or is she, can't remember, is she one of the TV companies now? She's had a very international background. They already had a strong sense of self and they were already different. So in terms of who you're born, where you're born, we know this matters. But if we can give people nuggets of knowledge earlier on in their careers about championing achievements. And the, the, the other thing we talk about, which I, I always find fascinating, Amanda Scott and Zella King wrote a book called My Personal Boardroom. And I'd never heard of this before. And it's about who are the 12 people in your own boardroom sitting above your head? Because you need a diverse range of individuals helping you, not just everyone in the same department and division. And you should have information providers, knowledge about your industry. You should have energizers anchoring you, supporting you, engaging you, giving you a sort of little hug every now and again. And then you should have power unlockers. And if you think about all the career development that we talk about, you need a mentor, you need a coach, you need a this. Are you actively managing these 12 people? And UBS, I gather, through Amanda Scott and Zella King, played a game where they asked their executives, hundreds of them, to name 12 people. And then they ask you to only have two in your department and only have six in your company. And they found that in, in general, men had very diverse supporters and in their effective personal boardrooms. And women tended to not blur the work-life boundaries and have them all in the same division. You're vulnerable if you are. So it's a way you can actively manage and actively understand how to make a difference and be really conscious about owning your careers, which is what we think is really important, because sadly, we can't rely on the management teams of our own companies in general to do it for us, because currently, they haven't always done a good job and just look at the gender pay gaps. Well, let's hope that the greater transparency and more work that people such as yourselves are doing really doesn't just shine a light on it, but actually that light acts as a uh, a cleanser, as as a steriliser to weed out all the bad practices and create a fairer and more inclusive workforce, both at the very top and and at the bottom, and that permafrost, (laughs) the the middle management permafrost. I I hope I never end up being a a permafrost middle manager, but uh, at my age, it's probably probably already am. Sadly, that's all we have time for, but I just want to thank Fiona for taking the time to speak to us today, and thank you all for listening. For more news and views, go to ftadvisor.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.